Um, hey, I'm Jake. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. So glad that you're with us today. Um, also, uh, hello if you're watching with us online. So glad that you're with us too, wherever you're at. Um, I hope to see you again in person at some point soon. Uh, we're going to head into Matthew chapter 24 right now. So grab a Bible if you have one. Uh, Matthew chapter 24. We're doing in youth where if every kid brings their Bible, they get in and out. We'll get in and out for the whole group. So think about it. I don't know. Um, the, the content that Jesus is going to start getting into um, is some of the most confusing, complex uh, passages in the whole Bible, I would argue. And we're getting into this conversation that commentators have come to call the Olivet Discourse. You may have heard that phrase before. It's called that because it's a conversation that takes place on the Mount of Olives. And so before I get into it, I just want to tell you the next three weeks, so this week, next Sunday, and the following Sunday, I'm going to teach this kind of beginning chunk, a primer on the whole conversation. Jeff's going to teach next week, and then Gerald will finish out that conversation. Um, and I don't know if coming to church three weeks in a row is your thing or not, but I would encourage you, if you're going to try it, do it these three weeks. Um, it's just that every week, I mean, it's one singular flow of thought, really, that we're taking uh, in three chunks. And we're trying to be as intentional as we can um, to kind of parlay that together. And so if you come just one or just two, there's going to be some missing context that would be really helpful for you to have um, just for the depth of our own learning together. So... Uh, I read a book this year, it was one of my favorite books that I read this year called, in, uh, called The Contemplative Pastor by Eugene Peterson. Um, he's the guy who did the message uh, Bible paraphrase. He wrote this book, which is so helpful for me uh, this year. Just like any job, just like any industry, you kind of hit some of those seasons where you're like, wait, what am I doing? Wait, what is this for? What, what, how, do, how do we do this? How do we blank? Why do we blank? Um, and he offers these three fundamental adjectives for what it means to be a pastor. Number one is unbusy. And he doesn't mean unproductive or inefficient. He means unhurried, like un too busy to focus and be present with people. I love that. That's beautiful. Second adjective is this, subversive which like the punk rocker in me just loves, you know, like getting up under like the system and calling out the system for what it is and helping uh, reframe or change the system, like whatever, subversive, like changing the status quo for the, for the good and the redemptive purpose that's in it. Number three adjective was apocalyptic. Boom, that's insane. I was like, what? What in the world? He defines it though. As revelation, in, in the purest sense, just the definition of the word biblically, it means revelation, that which is revealed or uncovered, especially having to do with the end of all things. Think of John in the book of Revelation. Think of that as the apocalypse of John, really, this vision, this revealed thing that he saw, especially having to do with the end of all things. So he builds out this case. Here's a quote from the book. Under the crisis of persecution and under the urgency of an imminent end, Reality is revealed suddenly for what it is. We had supposed our lives were so utterly ordinary. Sin habits dull our free faith into stodgy moralism and respectable boredom. Then crisis rips the veneer of cliche off everyday routines and reveals the side-by-side -side splendors and terrors of heaven and hell. Wow. That's what it means to live with an apocalyptic posture, to live with what Peterson calls the urgency of an imminent end. It's going to happen. That's what imminent means. Always looking at reality soberly and accurately, 
The way you do when emergency strikes your life, maybe crisis strikes your life, and the difference between unimportant and important becomes crystal clear. You know those moments? So apocalyptic in my mind, like it just, it conjures images of like a raging street preacher or a cult leader, or at best, just a really hyper-fundamentalist but culturally aloof pastor. But as always, we will really lose the baby with the bathwater if we avoid ideas that are deeply biblical because of cultural baggage that we find hard to shed from them. And I'm just saying all that to say, Jesus will not let us do that. As we read through and teach through the next couple weeks of Matthew as faithfully as we can, he will not let us ignore the apocalyptic. And I think we'll see the call for not only pastors, but for every person who wants to follow Jesus to live as an apocalyptic Person, meaning that you live with this front of mind knowledge that there is an end that is imminent. The details of that, the logistics, the chronological details, I don't know. We'll, we'll maybe, you know, do a little bit of that through these couple weeks. Um, probably not as much as some of you would like, maybe more than others would like. I don't know. All this to say, the way that Jesus positions the idea it shows that he is less concerned with your future theories than he is with your present practice. That's what I, I do not want you to miss. Jesus is always less concerned with your theories of the future than he is with your present practice and faithfulness and obedience to him. So let me just read through. It's gonna be verses one through 14. We'll read through all together right now. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? And truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And just mark that in your memory right there. So the next three weeks, all these verses, is Jesus' long, complicated response. But that's the prompt. That's the question they ask that begins the answer. Verse 4, Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Period. Done. <laughs> Wild. Um, I want to give you a disclaimer. The, the first 50% of the message is a little bit... Um, academic today. I was telling the guys, I get, I get a little nervous in that because I know that that's really interesting to me. I'm just acknowledging that's not as interesting to everybody in the room, potentially. But then we'll do a little more kind of preaching application on the second half of the message. So you will be sad and or happy, depending on however that goes for you. But we got we to orient our minds a little bit to what's happening. So that'll be this first section here. 
This passage is difficult for at least three reasons, and then we'll tackle them. Number one, Jesus uses a lot of unfamiliar language. It's prophetic, but with an apocalyptic flavor. So that means it's not entirely foreign. He's prophetic other times in his speech, but he certainly takes it up a notch. He turns it to 11, you could say. Number two, Jesus makes a few claims that seem to be chronological. This is hard for us because that means he gives you enough language to make you ask the question, when? But he doesn't give you enough detail to answer it properly. That's frustrating for us and leads to all kinds of problems. Number three, there is not a historically unanimous consensus on interpretation. There's not. I mean, people have argued and disagreed and agreed over this for years and years and years and years. There's not a historically like unanimous, like if you want to be true and orthodox, this is what you believe. Now, I just want to say anytime that that's true of a passage or an idea, we cannot stress enough the need for humility and a loose grip on our conclusions, a loose, open, humble grip on the conclusions that we come to. So uh, interpretations. I want to lay out a couple uh, possible and one that I think is probably the most probable of how to interpret it. But the basic question is, um, you read this and you think, what is he talking about? Yes, but really you think, when is he talking about? Because there's, there's some stuff in here that sounds pretty specific, sounds pretty literal and physical, but... Like, is that a fair question? Can I ask, when will this happen? And so there's a few different interpretations for the when. Number one is called preterism. Say preterism. Nice. The passage says nothing about the second coming of Christ or the events of the last days. And it only relates to what will happen between the resurrection of Jesus and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So there's this whole camp of interpretation about the Olivet Discourse. Remember, that's the conversation on the Mount of Olives. We call it Olivet Discourse. There's a whole camp of interpretation that says all of this is going to happen really soon and really literally and physically. So it's all Jerusalem, all the, the temple. And by AD 75, AD 80, it's like as good as done. We don't even have to worry about it. Number two is called futurism. This is the exact opposite. Just flip it. The passage says nothing about the events between Christ's resurrection and the destruction of the temple. And it only relates to the second coming of Christ and the events of the last days. So that's just the exact opposite. Basically saying none of this will or has happened from the time of Jesus' resurrection to the time that the temple was destroyed in AD 70. This is all future. It's all going to come someday. This is a more popular camp than the first camp, but I still think it has some holes. I would offer number three. I didn't come up with this, but I want to call it hybrid, or I think this one is right, but it doesn't make a massive difference practically, so you're welcome to disagree. And I, <laughs> I made Marnie type that for the slides. It's <laughs> like so dumb. Uh, this passage describes both the events before and during the destruction of the temple, as well as the last days before and during Christ's return. I think this is true because if you look at the passage, the verses really seem to be talking about both events at different times, and it's hard to explain the opposite if that's not true. For example, as we continue the next couple weeks, verses 15 through 18, they seem clearly to be about the physical, literal temple in Jerusalem, while later on in the chapter, 19 through 31, it seems so obviously unfulfilled. It must be about the second coming of Christ because of none of that, like it's hard to build a case that any of that has truly happened the way that he describes. Scholars have a term for this kind of writing called foreshortening. So think like foreshadowing when you kind of, you know, the, the, the mysterious music starts playing 
in the movie. Think of that, but a little bit different. David Jackman defines it as the idea that events in the near future and those much further ahead are spoken of as if they are very close together because they have common characteristics. The analogy of a mountain range is used and I think is helpful. So if you stand up on top of a mountain, and you look across to another mountain peak that might be who knows how far away, it actually feels like it's pretty close together just because of that perspective. But then when you actually descend to that mountain, you're like, oh no, I gotta keep walking and climbing to the other one. There's actually miles and miles and miles in between them. If you think of these two events, how they're written just in the scope of this one seamless paragraph and description, if you think about that, it seems like here we have this one mountain peak, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and way out there, you've got the second coming of Christ on another mountain peak. But while we're looking at it just through this one paragraph that Jesus is describing, we see this foreshortening that Jackman talks about. It looks like that might be closer because of the common characteristics, just like mountaintops. And you're probably thinking, you're doing a great job explaining this, but I wish there was a chart to look at. So there's a chart by (laughs) Daniel Doriani. I didn't make this chart, but I think it's helpful. Um, Basically, you see on the leftmost side, the predictions in the text that we're looking at from the chapter, and then basically two um, really defendable interpretations that would say there's a good case to be made that that has happened before AD 70, and then there's a really good case to be made that that has not yet happened, and so we're expecting it someday. I'll just name a couple. I know it's hard to read. First one says that false Christs will come. That's a prediction throughout the chapter. There's a good case to be made that because there were so many Jewish prophets coming before AD 70 that predicted God will deliver Jews from Rome, didn't happen. Final fulfillment of that, though, is what we read through the rest of Scripture, that there's someone called the Antichrist who will deceive many by his words and deeds. Um, Third one down there, it says the gospel will be preached in the whole world in verse 15. There's a decent case to be made that the gospel before AD 70 was proclaimed throughout the known world. But then there's a good and I think better case that that one is probably talking like someday that the gospel is preached to every people. Last one down there, the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven. There's a version in which before AD 70, there's fulfillment of prophecy that that shows that Jesus reigns in heaven. Even just look at his resurrection, his ascension, it shows he's going to heaven. So there is this reign of the son of man. You could say that there's a sign to that in some way. And still there's a strong case that that's talking about Jesus returning on clouds of the sky with angels. This interpretation is compelling to me because it's consistent with the verses that seem to be clearly talking about each event. And at the same time, it honors the questions that the disciples are asking and it acknowledges their assumptions. In other words, if this is only about the future, Jesus didn't answer their question at all or acknowledge their situation at all. And let me try to explain that. The first verse says this, Jesus left the temple and was going away. Jesus left the temple and was going away. Visualize it. Here we are at the temple. Jesus is walking this way toward the mountain that's on the east side of the city. Here's what we can see. We have so much, we have so much privilege because we have this entire book finished, the canon of scripture closed and ready for us to digest. Um, we can look back at, back at Ezekiel eleven twenty three. 23. 
there's this prophecy. It says that the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that's on the east side of the city. That's literally the Mount of Olives where Jesus is heading right now. The symbolism here is so deep and rich. We can see Jesus, he is the Lord, getting up and walking away from what has become a desolate house, he calls it. And with him, he takes all of the presence and the glory and the protective power of God. It's like he in this moment is fulfilling this crazy prophecy from Ezekiel chapter 11. But all the disciples saw, okay, we are privileged with that perspective. All the disciples would have seen is Jesus, their guy, their hope, walking away from the thing he was supposed to save. Like if there was a physical representation of all of the hope and all of the redemptive story and past and, and, and future of Israel, if there was like a physical representation of that, it was the temple. And these guys have been waiting for like Jesus's reign and, and rule to be officially started. And right now, like in this week where it's like, okay, the triumphal entry happened. That was cool. Like there's some fulfilled prophecy there. Okay, it's happening. I think it's happening. I think it's happening. Anytime now he's going to take over. He's going to take the throne and put like a crown on and he's going to be ruling. And he's like not supposed to walk away from the temple. So they're just saying, Jesus, where are you going? This is like kind of our spot, right? This is like the, the place. And so almost out of this awkward like, attempt to, to sort of make small talk, but also turn his direction back to the temple. They start saying stuff like, wow, Jesus, look at the beautiful buildings. They say, it's not here, but in the other gospels, Jesus, look at the great stonework on these, on these buildings. Like as if Jesus forgot about the great stonework and he was like, you're right, there's great stonework. Oh, where was I going? Okay, and then he like turns around. It's not that. They're just like trying desperately to turn his eyes back toward the thing he was leaving, but they thought he should not leave. Jesus says, yeah, the temple is great. He says, look, you see all of these buildings, right? Yeah, they're all, they're all really beautiful. Well, these will actually all be leveled to the ground. And that cues their question. And here's the key to their question. They think they're asking about a single event. And Jesus answers them by describing two events. See, that's confusing. Because when they say, what will be the sign of your coming? They're not thinking that he would ever leave and come back. They had no reason to think he was going anywhere. They certainly didn't think he was going to die and come back from the dead or ascend and then come back someday down the road. They were asking like, when I, when I say, when, when are you coming? That's like, when is your reign and your rule officially beginning? So Jesus answers their compound question by describing not one, but two events. One is about immediate and local judgment, the destruction of the temple. And the other event is about global and final judgment. And the trick is that he weaves in and out of each description in a way that is both very clear and very mysterious. Positioning the two events just like mountaintops that look close together when you're looking at them together, but they're actually miles and miles and years and years and centuries and millennia apart. So it probably goes without saying that the disciples did not pick up what he was laying down. But that's why I would endorse ultimately a hybrid way of reading this discourse, which I think is gonna be helpful context for us as we wrestle with it the next couple weeks. Um, so thanks for coming to my TED Talk on that. We will move on. I wanna structure the rest of the time. Um, by offering you three things to watch out for and then one thing to really encourage your heart. 
Regardless of what event or what events you think Jesus is talking about here, you have to respond to the warnings at the end of this passage. Verses 10 through 12. Let me read through those. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Three tragic characteristics that will increasingly define humanity until the end of time. I want to offer up. Number one is that faithfulness will be too costly. Many will fall away, verse 10 says. We believe as a church in what we call eternal security. That means that you can't lose your salvation. God's grip on you is firm, right? He says no one can snatch his children from his hand. But at the same time, we also believe that there are, and there always will be, um, people who have yet to surrender their their full life to Christ, have yet to call him Lord, have yet to put away their own attempts of salvation, but still for some reason they like to maintain proximity to the church, but only insofar as it aligns with and confirms some other deeper identity that's more precious to them than that of Christ follower. See, so for these folks, church would be a club to be affiliated with rather than a family to be adopted into and to belong to. There's plenty of good, healthy identities we have until they become master of our identity in Christ. Maybe it's father or mother or brother or sister. Maybe it's American citizen or it's Republican or Democrat. There's some identity for some where the Christianity thing it was always subservient to that identity rather than the other way around. There will always be those who, because of that, because in some way, church and faith is, is still comfortable enough, culturally conducive enough, and it's convenient enough that it aligns with and confirms that other identity. So they're going to stay close as long as those things are true. And the truth is, as time goes and as Christianity becomes less convenient, and I want to tell this as as a warning, as a promise, Christianity will become less convenient than it already is. It will become less comfortable. It will become less culturally conducive than it already is. And at that point, for those who are always maintaining proximity without depth and reality to it, faithfulness will simply be too costly. It's too uncomfortable, it's too inconvenient, and culture does not agree with it anymore. So it's too costly. My pastor growing up always said this line and it stuck with me like those things often do. He said, whatever it costs you to remain faithful to Jesus, I promise you that disobedience will cost you more. Number two, tragic characteristic, is that orthodoxy will be too stale. Verse 11 says, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Shankar Vedantam wrote a book called Useful Delusions, and his case is basically, um, we like being deceived. And I, it's, I know that it's too reductive to say it like that in one sentence. And he's not arguing biblically, he's not a Christian, but there is a piece of his thesis that I think is super fascinating, that we welcome deception insofar as it fills the void that we leave for it. See, the spaces in which we create a vacuum by not filling with truth, We are basically saying, I like being deceived in this, basically. I think he's right on that. I think there's there's at least a part of us that craves what we might know is wrong because it fills an area in which we are dissatisfied or unfulfilled with what we know is right. 
It's when the good news becomes old news, boring and stale. So then false teaching, it doesn't even need to be that good or that gripping or compelling. It just needs to be different. So people will be deceived, not necessarily because the false teaching was that compelling, but because people have a vacuum for truth that is waiting to be filled by the highest bidder. First Timothy speaks to this in chapter four. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So how do you keep that from happening? If I could be a little cheese ball for a second, I would say make sure that the ears are adequately scratched, okay? Make sure the ears are adequately scratched. Like think, think dog with a tick and just, you know, just going at it. Like that's us. That's, that's us with the Bible, with the word, with the truth. To know that deception can't happen if there's no room for it. It can't happen if truth is what fills every void and every vacuum because you are constantly consuming the word, bathing in its truth, digesting it like daily bread. See, people who not only know, but are satisfied with what is true, they cannot be deceived by what is false. There's no, sp- there's no open space. No vacancy sign is on. See, there's, there's a lot of different styles I think you could take when you, when you read this, learn this, teach this. There's, there's a style out there. I think that at this point, it would be time to go on a witch hunt. Let's go find every false teacher that there is, every false prophet, and I'm gonna post about them all over whatever feed of choice is. And I'm just gonna, just warning, don't read his books. Don't go there, don't do it. Like that's a style and it's, it's okay. Like I'm not saying that there's no redemptive productivity from that. I don't know. Um, it's just not my style. I would say, what if you took the time that, that might be devoted to the witch hunt and you said, okay, I'm gonna take that time and I'm going to fill my mind and my soul and my heart with truth constantly. And I'm gonna do that for my family and my friends and the people in my community. We are just gonna bathe in the truth, the, the word that is water for us and washes us. We're just gonna digest this like the daily bread that it is. We're gonna consume truth like it's nobody's business. So that, yeah, there's false prophets out there. There's false teachers out there. But you won't be deceived because you are so founded and so grounded on the truth. There are those who will be deceived because to their itching ears, false teaching will sound fun and orthodoxy will be too stale. Number three, Sin will be too promising, verse 12 says. Sin will be too promising because lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. Jesus pleads in Revelation 2, please remember your first love. Don't forget, don't forget. But there's still those who will not and it'll come as the result of increased sin, which continually numbs the soul and leads further and further away from the life that is truly life. So think the exact inverse of our faithfulness to Jesus. Sin will only become more convenient. It'll only become more comfortable. It'll only become more culturally conducive over time. And as always, sin will overpromise and it'll underdeliver. The problem is that for, for all of us, for so many of us, we just have to see for ourselves. Right? You know that feeling? Like, don't touch that. It's hot. Come on. I, I got to see for myself. I just got to see for myself, man. 
I just encourage you, can this be a, an area where you are content to be naive about the, you don't have to see for yourself. Content to be ignorant about the cost and the consequence of what that sin will provide for you. Consent to be naive about it. Be happy with the ignorance. Like, I don't need to see. Because sin will overpromise. We know that. We say that again and again and again. It'll overpromise, it'll underdeliver. But as faithfulness becomes too costly, as sin becomes easier and more comfortable and more culturally not only conducive but rewarded and celebrated, man, sin will just be too promising. Now, I say these three things to you, hopefully in the same, in the same tone that Jesus had. It's not like, hey, be scared. It's just, hey, don't be surprised. That's it. That's the tone of Jesus. So much of success and faithfulness, I think, comes from knowing what to expect. Like so much of disappointment and failure and discontentment, it just comes with like, you didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't know how to respond because you were shocked. Jesus is just saying, guys, you Christians, you should be sorrowful and empathetic and saddened and pre you should be all these things, but you should not be surprised by anything that happens. Like you should be the least surprised people in the world. And it's just funny and sad how opposite that is, I think, from our cultural experience. Like, yes, we're sad and we're sorrowful, but it's like we're the most surprised people in the world. You know, it's like you're like looking at the world going like, they're doing what? How? What? Why? And Jesus is just like, guys, I told you. I've been telling you all this time. Things are very bad. The world is bad. Things will get worse. And we're just like, no, but it used to be so good. America was all Christians. And like, no, like we shouldn't be surprised. We should be the least shocked people. That's the tone here. It's not doomsday. It's not anxiety inducing. It's children, sons, daughters. You can expect this. So watch out, but I love you, I have you, I'm holding you firm. No one can snatch you from my hand. And here's the thing, one thing to encourage your heart that we close with, let me read from verses 13 and 14. The one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus says, okay, all this is true. It's, it's, not, it's not like exciting news necessarily. It's confusing. It's complex news. But I'm saying don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. But also don't be discouraged. Because look at this. Last idea is that the end is coming and the end is good. The end is coming and the end is good. And I thought a lot about how to write that. And I really mean that. I mean that it's good. Every part of it, even the parts that don't yet register in our imaginations as good, it is because there is a future reality in which every atom in existence will truly and deeply conform to the truest and deepest definition of justice as it flows from the heart of God himself. This thing that we, every, every person is so hungry for, make things right. Make the wrongs right. God, punish wrong. God, have mercy on those who come to you for mercy. Like the, the 
the word itself, like justice and goodness from God. There's a future reality in which we're there. Like it happens. And it's, it's we can't even like, the, what we talk about when we say the word good, like it's just, it's like through a veil, like it's through a mere dimly, not, not the fullness of the, the idea or the word. Like we, there's no way we could even grasp when, when God says the end is gonna be good. Like there's no way we could even grasp the totality, the thorough, deep meaning of that because we're just in this space of, of kind of ambiguity where it's the already not yet whole thing, which is good news, but also complicated news where Jesus came and he died and he reigns, but at the same time, like he... Satan's also still out here like on the prowl, just like figuring stuff out for himself, doing what he wants. So, so Jesus reigns, but like not totally yet, but there's some you know, version of the future where, where he will reign totally, but we're not quite there yet. So there's all this pain of transition and, and ambiguity of, of, okay, like how, how do I live as a person who is you know, co-reigning with God over this kingdom, but not totally, yeah. Like I'm just, I'm super inhabited by my own flesh and I'm like broken and torn apart all the time as myself. So it's like a Roman seven kind of thing. Like I do things I don't wanna do. I don't do things I do wanna do, but there's a future where that won't be true anymore. I'll just do things that I do wanna do. There's just, we, we can't, we're too, we're too self-contradicting. We're too complicated. We're too torn in, in two different directions all the time in this, this meantime. But there is, there is a picture where at the end, everything will be, will be exactly what it is. Like no disintegration. Like you will be complete before your father. His reign and his rule will be completely fulfilled and effective. And that's a good thing. That truth and beauty and goodness will be revealed in a fullness and a depth that no eye has ever seen, no ear has ever heard. So the ending is coming. It's an eminent end that calls for us, pastors, anyone alike, followers of Jesus, everybody, to live with an apocalyptic posture. The end is coming. But don't be scared because the end is a good thing. So all of that to say, here's my hope for today, and then we'll worship. May our future salvation fuel our present endurance. May the good news that is the gospel be proclaimed throughout all nations. And last, may the good end come. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thanks for your word and for this conversation we get to hop in on a couple thousand years later. Um, that saints have been hopping in on for uh, the last couple thousand years, uh, trying to understand what you said and why and when. Lord, thanks for the beauty of your word, the depth and the richness to it. Uh, Lord, I pray for grace just along the way as we try our very best to dissect it and understand it. Lord, grace for missteps along the way. Um, even things that were said this morning that, that are unhelpful. God, would you, would you have grace that covers that? Would you bring correction where it's needed? Uh, build our minds and our hearts to follow you more effectively. Uh, Lord, as people um, in a world that is increasingly comfortable with sin, um, I pray that we would be apocalyptic and subversive against it. Lord, we would be the countercultural tide that offers a place for people to grow 
toward what they were meant to grow towards in light of an imminent end, knowing that what we have here is not forever. This is not a forever home. So allow our attention, our affection, and our effort be toward our eternal home with you and your kingdom. And God, as always, uh, would any thoughts or theorizing about the future, would that fuel our present obedience? Would that fuel our present faithfulness and practice and the way that we love each other? Would we be the most, not the most surprised and shocked people, but just the most loving, non-anxious people in the entire world? Lord, we love you. Would you be honored in our songs? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, Jake. Why don't you guys rise?